This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, Grit TV with Laura Flanders, The Young Turks, Citizen Radio, NPR, and Radio Dispatch. And a note that it's getting harder and harder to label each of these episodes as single categories because the deeper I get into the details, the more the intersectionality of the issues comes screaming through each segment. What do you do as a society when you no longer need, and to make this sound really harsh, when you no longer need your slaves? Now, I'm not literally talking about slaves in the term, you know, in, in like, you know, black African slavery or for that matter, you know, white indenture, that kind of thing, but. I think that there's a big tinge or a big piece of this to that. If your society is organized in such a way that the decisions that are made by legislature and the decisions that are made by business as a consequence of the rules of business established by your legislature, by your government, are to do things in the interest of the general public, to do what's best for the nation and its people, then what you do with your surplus workers is you figure out a way to put them back to work. This is not rocket science. When there are when there are when there is less demand in a society or when work has been, you know, vanishes for a variety of reasons. Back in 1929, the work vanished because of a stock in the uh, crash in the stock market. And a crash in a, in a huge burst bubble in the, in the housing market in 27-28. The outcome of that was that about a third of American workers were redundant, unnecessary, couldn't find a job. The economy could not put them to work. Capitalism failed them. And Herbert Hoover's Republican answer to that for three years was to do absolutely nothing because the Republicans believe that when capitalism fails, when you have extra workers, when you have surplus workers who are willing to work, available to work, capable of working, but there's really nothing for them to do, you do nothing. So back in the 30s, it was benign indifference. Then Franklin Roosevelt came along and said, that's just wrong. Uh, I'm going to put those people to work. There's a lot of stuff that can be done in this country. We need to build our national parks. We need to build our, our roads. We need to build hospitals and schools. We need to plant forests and trees in order to stop the, the, the dust bowl. There's all kinds of stuff that needs to be done. And he created all these agencies. And he put Americans back to work. And thus, and thus people had money to spend, and that created demand, and the demand created you know, demand for goods, people were buying goods and services, and so businesses started growing, and capitalism got rebooted. Now, up until this point, on this program and in my books and my writings, I have been drawing a, a very, fairly clean parallel between the 1930s and today, saying that, you know, what we have today is we have surplus workers also. Now, in this case, they're surplus workers in part because of a stock market crash, but in large part, they're surplus workers because of a change in our trade policies. All the jobs went overseas. So we have surplus workers. In other words, we have high unemployment. It's another way of saying surplus workers. 20, some would argue 30% un and underemployment rate in the United States. 
certainly in the teens. And in minority communities, it can be as high as 50%, depending on where. In some places, it's higher than that. But I would submit to you, and this just hit me like a board upside the head about 10 minutes ago as I was reading an op-ed by Chris Hedges over at Common Dreams, at Truth Dig, actually, is where it first started out. We have changed the way that we deal with the workers that we don't need anymore. Used to be when we didn't need extra people, we just ignored them. Now, good capitalists have figured out a way to make a profit off them. Follow me on this. What do you do with your slaves when you no longer need their services? What do you do with your workers when you no longer need their services? Historically, what we've done is we've, you know, is Republicans have said, eh, they're poor. The poor will be with you always. Paraphrase Jesus. The Democrats have said, no, we have a moral obligation. We're going to put them back to work. I would submit to you that over the last 30 years, and this really started picking up steam during the Reagan era, although you can t track it back. I mean, I, earlier I was talking about Rockefeller's drug laws in New York State, and he was Jerry Ford's vice president. But at least for the last 30 years, instead what we have said is, because if you look at imprisonment rates in the United States, what you find is that the, the, it's been a fairly flat line from 1900 to 1980, and then it just takes off like a rocket after the Reagan administration. We are 5% of the world's population with 25% of the world's prisoners. What happened was that the good capitalists among us, and this includes some Democrats and a lot of Republicans, decided what do you do when you no longer need your workers? You make money off them. You can make $100,000 a year off somebody if you make them a prisoner and you put them in a for-profit prison and you really damage them badly. They need medical services. They need food. They need housing. They, they, you, you, you can make, and, and, you know, the average profit on making somebody a prisoner is probably, or the average revenue source is probably around fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year per person. Now, FDR would have said, let's spend half that and just put them back to work. But what we have come up with is this incredibly brutal system to turn poor people into criminal people. Why have we done that? Because it's profitable. The police industry, the police equipment industry, the private prison industry, the drug testing industry, right across the board, everybody's making a buck on it. Going from profit-driven media to profit-driven prisons, we've talked many times on this show, Lewis, about the connection between private prisons, banks, owning part, parts of those private prison companies, 
and the detention of undocumented immigrants. And we figured out how there's this conflict of interest where private prisons can make money off of the detention of undocumented immigrants and therefore now have a stake in immigration policy. We've talked about the connection between private prisons and the war on drugs, right? And how private prisons stand to make money from a drug policy that puts more nonviolent drug offenders in prison. Just makes perfect sense. We haven't explored how private prisons are able to make millions even when crime rates go down, even when you restructure drug laws to keep more nonviolent drug offenders out of prison. But Mother Jones has a really good article outlining this, and they explain how, to take the example of the CCA Lewis, the Corrections Corporation of America, that's the nation's largest owner of private prisons, they've seen their revenue go up by over 500% in the last 20 years, and this is in spite of, re, uh, uh, of declining crime rates. And this is just fascinating, the way this is happening. CCA is able to get, they, they do a number of different things. Number one, last year, CCA made an offer to 48 different governors to buy and operate their state-funded prisons. But the pitch, the part of the pitch that gives us insight into what is really going on behind the scenes is that there are occupancy requirements. So when the pitch is made, let's say I'm CCA and I go to a, a prison in Ohio and I say, we'd like to take over this prison. We think we could just take this completely off of your plate. However, we'll give you X amount of money for the prison, but we need an occupancy requirement that this prison will be 90% full at all times or 95% full, or it could be any number, regardless of whether crime is going up or crime is going down. So as it turns out, this is pretty common in the private prison industry. There's a new report by In the Public Interest, and they reviewed 62 contracts for, for, uh, for different private prisons around the country, and 41 of those had occupancy requirements somewhere between 80 and 100% full. So the, the reason for this, Lewis, is obvious. We can have a guaranteed stream of income. We don't have to worry about our prisons sitting empty. So what happens when crime drops and the natural level of occupancy might drop below the agreed upon rate? Well, the state then has to, in order to meet its contract requirements, move prisoners from the state-funded prisons to the private prisons. And then what happens? The, the state prisons are emptier and emptier still incurring the same overhead costs, and you have taxpayers paying for state prisons that are increasingly empty while the state is giving these guaranteed occupancy contracts to for-profit corporations which have an interest in what I would consider unproductive immigration reform and certainly terrible war on drug incarceration policy. It is a horrible and corrupt and disgusting circle. It is despicable. And you know what? An, an occupancy guarantee, even outside of for-profit prisons, just the idea of an occupancy guarantee for a prison is, is mind-boggling. Certainly. And a state prison would not have that, which is yet another one of the reasons why private prisons are going to be an impediment to improving war on drugs and drug-related policy, reducing incarceration in favor of rehabilitation where it makes sense, not that it always does. And and this the, the states that are going, like Kentucky, which actually has now eliminated all private ownership of prisons, that's the direction we should really be going in.
Okay, what what do you think is the best thing of the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to to somebody who listens or watches? Because we cover everything and we do it well. <laughs> Why do you think people watch the show? I think that it's a completely different angle. I don't think it's about being expansive or up to date. I think it's 99% of media that's out there is giving one story, it's giving a particular point of view, and it's also not covering certain stories. So I don't know that it's about being up-to-date or expansive. I think it's, it's a well, non- Well, that's what I said. We cover everything. We don't cover everything, Lewis. How can we cover everything? We cover 8 to 10 stories. Everything important, pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. This system is so deeply rooted in our political, economic, and social structure that it's not just going to fade away. Uh, we are going to have to engage in real movement building in order to trigger a dramatic shift in the public consciousness. All right, well, let's talk about that because you say it's not through token tokenism or tankering, tinkering, I think is the word you use, that this change will come, but something much bigger. And I'm wondering if there's hope, as you see it, in the fact that there are many groups beginning to feel the, the lash of the incarceration system in different ways, but under the first George Bush and then Clinton, you saw spiraling rates of female incarceration. I don't think any group was affected more by mandatory minimums than women. Um, you now have people with debts finding themselves treated or, or you know, asked to take credit rating tests for very basic jobs in the same way that felons are, uh, you know, marginalized in the workplace. More and more white working class people with debts find that they can't get a job. Are there possibilities for alliances there? Or is there no getting around we have to grapple with race? Well, I think there's absolutely opportunities for broad-based coalition building, and you know those opportunities must be pursued, absolutely. But if we fail to deal with the racial anxieties and racial divisions and the racial politics that birthed mass incarceration and which have repeatedly birthed caste-like systems in the United States, if we fail to deal with that, even if mass incarceration fades away, a new caste-like system will be born, one that we may not be able to foresee today, just as mass incarceration was literally unimaginable just 40 years ago. Um, as long as you know these divide-and-conquer type politics um, are allowed to play out, and we have not yet forged durable, sustainable uh, alliances between poor people of all colors and a recognition and a full appreciation of our racial history and the harm that it has caused not just to African Americans and poor people of color but to all folks. Um, these kinds of caste-like systems I believe are going to continue to emerge. So I believe it's our task not just to end mass incarceration or the war on drugs, but to end this history and cycle of caste in America. What, is, what are the radical perspectives on this today? You talk about back in the um, Reconstruction era there were kind of conservatives and liberals and radicals, and the conservatives and liberals had different versions of this is an individual problem or a circumstances problem, and the radicals presented a really different analysis like yours. Are there groups today who represent that um, bigger change view? 
Oh, I think so, absolutely. And what's interesting is, you know, people like Angela Davis and Ruthie Gilmore, who've been doing, you know, wonderful work on this for many years and, you know, who describe themselves as abolitionists are defined as radicals, but their view that uh, we ought to do away with prisons entirely was actually a mainstream view in the 1970s amongst criminologists. You know, in the 1970s, mainstream criminologists thought that all of the research, available research, suggested that prisons actually caused more crime than they solved or prevented, uh, and that they had proved themselves relatively useless in our society and many people thought prisons were going to fade away and that we would deal with dysfunctioning communities in alternative ways. Uh, so it's interesting that what's dubbed today as being radical was once uh, quite mainstream. When crime was nothing like what it is today either. Um, where do you see the kind of change you're looking for happening? Is it happening anywhere? Well actually I want to say though that crime today is you know at the lowest level that it's it's been practically since they started keeping track and so there is a widespread public perception that the quintupling of our prison population is due to crime or to crime rates when it's just not true over the past you know 30 years crime rates have fluctuated have gone up have gone down today you know as bad as crime rates may be in some parts of the country, crime rates are actually at historical lows, but incarceration rates have consistently soared. So, uh, you know, this system of mass incarceration cannot be explained by crime or crime rates. It's a change in policy. It's the, a change in our response to people who we perceive to be criminals, um, not a change in crime rates itself. Take us back to the Jarvis Cottons of the world. When they get out of prison, they've done their time, they've served their sentence, maybe they're on parole, maybe they're even not on parole anymore. Um, what's life like for them? Life is, it is difficult to survive. I think, you know, most people have this general sense that, oh yeah, you've done time in prison. Yeah, things, you know, probably difficult getting back on your feet and nothing could be a greater understatement. You know, when you're released from prison, you first thing on your mind is how am I gonna feed myself? Where am I gonna sleep? You're released from prison, you're barred from public housing. Barred from public housing. And you can be discriminated against in the private and public housing markets for the rest of your lives. Where are you supposed to sleep? If your family lives in public housing, if your partner, your children are living in public housing, you want to go home to your kids, to your partner, your loved ones? No. Your family risks eviction if you even go home to them. How do you feed yourself? You're a drug offender. Food stamps may be off limits to you in a number of states. And for the rest of your life, when you try to go get a job, any job, you've got to check that box on employment applications, asking that dreaded question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? doesn't matter if the felony happened three weeks ago or 35 years ago. For the rest of your life, you've got to check that box knowing full well the odds are sky high. Your application's going straight to the trash. And you could have debts. We joke about or talk about the Chinese system of charging the family for the bullet when someone's um, executed. But we charge ex-felons too. I didn't realize that. Absolutely. People released from prison are often saddled with hundreds or thousands of dollars in fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support, 
which continues to accrue while you're in prison. And then in a growing number of states, you're actually expected to pay back the costs of your imprisonment. And then get this, if you're one of the lucky few who actually manages to get a job, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished to pay back all those fees, fines, court costs, accumulate back child support. What do we f expect folks to do? You know, I said, what's the system designed to do? Seems designed to send folks right back to prison, which is what in fact happens the majority of the time. If the prison also requires people to work and work at very, very low wages, is there not a profit motive? for this prison system that you describe? And if so, how do you unravel that? It's pretty yes. entrenched. Well, there are all kinds of profit motives now built into the prison system. And, you know, mass incarceration wasn't born with profit in mind. The drug war wasn't declared uh, with profit in mind. It was born of racial politics. But now <laughs> uh, it's become abundantly clear that a lot of money can be made uh, you know, from prisons. And it's not just corporations who outsource to prisoners <laughs> rather than to foreign countries, um, but it's also, you know, taser gun manufacturers, private health care providers who provide typically abysmal health care to people in prison, phone companies that gouge prisoners and their families. Um, there's a whole host of corporate interests that now benefit uh, and profit um, from the caging of human beings. And of course, private prison companies now listed on the New York Stock Exchange um, benefit and profit as well. I'm not feeling hopeful here, but you believe that it is possible for us to stop this cycle of, of, of emancipation and de-emancipation. Uh, you believe that a new type of civil rights movement can be born. Absolutely. How? And what kind of work can people engage in if they want to be part of that? You know, what, what's discouraging to me is that when I talk to people in the civil rights community who say, we've just got to be practical, we've just got to be realistic, you know, we've, we've just got to, you know, play the hand that's dealt to us, and, you know, there's only so much that can be done given current political realities. And I am so grateful that the freedom fighters who came before us did not have that kind of attitude. Uh, that the courageous freedom riders, uh, the civil rights activists um, who risked their lives um, believed that a different America was possible. And they brought Jim Crow to its knees when everyone said Jim Crow would never die. And so I firmly believe we can build a movement to end mass incarceration, a human rights movement for education, not incarceration, for jobs, not jails. It won't be easy, <laughs> but none of the struggles uh, that have been worth waging in the past were easy either. And uh, I, I think we're at a turning point right now. I believe that there is a growing interest in uh, standing up against the system of mass incarceration, insisting that we turn the page on these cycles, um, these caste-like systems and cycles in America. Why do you care so much about this? You could be doing all sorts of civil rights law. You could be doing exactly the kind of litigation you described at the top. Why take on this huge historical challenge? Well, I don't know. I don't know where my first calling came from, but I do know that after working in the communities hardest hit by mass incarceration and seeing their own courage and perseverance, trying to hold families together, trying to survive, still having faith, unable to get a job, cycling in and out of prison, you know, they inspire me.
they inspire me. And, uh, you know, I feel like if someone like Susan Burton, who, you know, herself um, struggled with crack addiction after her son was killed and cycled in and out of prison for 15 years, could finally, you know, get clean and dedicate her life to ensuring that no other woman would have to go through what she went through, cycling in and out of prison, barred from housing, unable to find work, and open safe houses for women and commit her life to organizing on their behalf. She can do it. I can do it too. And what about the rest of us out here who may think the job market is hard enough, at least we don't have those felons to compete with. This system's working for me. I don't want to unravel it. system isn't working for most people. You know, you may think it's working for you in the moment. <laughs> if you can pour, pay your mortgage payment today and put gas in your car. Um, but most people today are not that far away uh, from the system not working for them at all. And uh, I think it's becoming more and more clear today that as our government again and again backs up the truck to deliver, you know, tons of money to Wall Street and bail them out over and over again and turn a cold shoulder to the people who are struggling and who put them into office, that something about this system is broken. Uh, and uh, I believe that collectively when we make up our minds to do it, we can fix it. Michelle Alexander's book is The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. I am Coffee black and egg white Pull me out from inside I am ready, I am ready, I am ready I am taffy star a new job application form could save hundreds of California uh, Californians from returning to prison. So these are convicted convicts or ex-convicts that have gotten out of jail or prison and they want to apply for jobs. But unfortunately, a lot of these job applications include a section where you have to admit whether or not you were a convicted felon. And if you were a convicted felon, then chances are you're probably not going to get hired. And that's what really contributes to the high recidivism rate here in the United States. Uh, but Governor Jerry Brown has actually signed... this bump on nailing recidivism. It's not easy. Yeah. Recidivism <laughs> a difficult no, word to say. Good, yeah. Every time good. I say it, I get a little proud. Totally. <laughs> I do a little shimmy. Anyway, um, so Governor Jerry Brown is set to sign uh, this piece of legislation, and I think it's actually uh, good news because it would remove the question on local and state job applications. And hopefully, if California takes the lead on this, um, it will have a domino effect in other states, and hopefully uh, these convicted felons or ex-felons will have the opportunity to restart their lives. Because in reality, we have this system where where we make people pay for their crimes, they get punished, and then after they serve their time, we still treat them as criminals. So how do you expect them to be contributing members of society when you keep 
you know, treating them as if they're nothing. Yeah, what a horrifically backwards law this was for the exact reasons that you just said. It's crazy. If, you, if these people are serving their time, if, they, if they're doing their time correctly, often getting out early, yet they have committed a felon, which nobody's diminishing that, that you're not giving them a chance to rebuild their life. Because at the end of the day, if two people have two exact same resumes and one says former felon and one doesn't, obviously you're going to go with this one. And that's crazy because otherwise you just send these people back to jail. That's known as recidivism. <laughs> recidivism. Uh, or, or they're just going to have to get on unemployment or uh, you know, all kinds of other public programs where, which is just taken from the system. That's too, actually so. a great point. Um, usually what happens is uh, since they can't get jobs, they do have to depend on food stamps and other social programs. So taxpayers actually end up spending more yeah. of their money on taking care of these people who are um, ex-convicts. So it's, it's a disaster. And I think that uh, this legislation that was proposed, and hopefully um, the governor does sign it, I think that it's common sense legislation, and I would like to see it have a huge impact on other states as well. And I should also note that 25% of Americans have a criminal record. And think about all the tough-on-crime legislation we have right now, tough-on-crime laws we have right now, like anti-drug laws, for instance. So people are serving time in prison for that, and then it impacts their lives negatively forever. Yeah, and w one other thing real quick is if we're supposed to have any faith in our criminal justice system that these people are being rehabilitated, well then we have to give them every opportunity to be integrated back into society and to be able to get a job. Otherwise, what are we actually saying about what we've done to them in jail? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? No, if we, we'd, we'd be being honest. Well, we'd be case. being honest, right. but, but since when does that have anything to do right. with the public discourse? Uh, the reason I was looking for the Los Angeles Times, which I got out here and I did not grab the front section, is I read a story today in today's LA Times, Aaron Alexis is that the Navy shooter's yeah. name, right? Yeah. So, Aaron Alexis, as they were, as the as the Navy and the contractor who hired him, sort of sort through the giant missed signals that screamed, "Don't give this guy security clearance." One of the things when he applied for the job was he had to check that box: was he ever convicted of a felony? And apparently, here's how you get out of that: check no, and that's that. So yeah. you know, and and it was that simple. And, and they said it in their quote. They're like, oh, look at this. He said no. What, what, what were we going to do? So maybe what felons need to do is check no. And yeah. then, of course, they risk the, uh, they run the risk of, you know, I don't know. I don't know. That's against the is that a felony if, if you, you, uh, you don't check the, or check the box incorrectly? <laughs> yeah. But that's all Aaron Alexis did is he checked no. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. This next segment... Or next segment? What? Uh, this next story, I think, can be filed under uh, Declining Empire Watch. Sesame Street, which, you know, 
it always tries to keep up with the times and they'll do stuff like they switch Cookie Monster from cookies to apples and they try to teach kids Is about... Is he Apple Monster now? Uh, well, he eats fruit now. Not just cookies. Aww. It's very cute. I didn't know that. And they'll they'll do really cool things. Like they had a character who's poor. So they talked about stuff like food insecurity and stuff like that. Do you want to know what I would do if I was Apple Monster? What's that? I'd be like, apples. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> apples. And I'd, I'd just make that. And That's I mean, not a good lesson to teach little Nothing kids. makes me more mad than when I go to Allison. I'm hungry. I want to order food. And she goes, are you hungry enough to eat an apple? And I want to throw the apple at your head. <laughs> no, I'm not. Because apples suck. Well, you're also slightly allergic to apples. They so, make my gums itch. Which is super weird? weird. Super weird. I think it's the skin. I don't fully believe you. If you would cut up the apples for me and put almond butter on it, I'd like it. I could do that or I could do nothing. I know. Uh, so, <laughs> Sesame Street, again, in keeping with the times, is going to teach kids about America's incarceration epidemic. Whoa. Uh, in a segment called My Dad's in Jail. Shit. So this is from Reason. Nearly 7 million people are under correctional supervision in the United States. More than 2 million of them are in jail or prison. If you want to know what those numbers mean for the American family, consider this. The makers of Sesame Street decided to design and release an educational kit titled Little Children, Big Challenges, Incarceration. The kit is an educational outreach initiative for families with children ages 3 to 8 who are coping with parents' incarceration. Can you imagine telling a 5-year-old about prison? Quote, our resources, says Sesame Streeters, provide talking points and tools to help families manage the changes resulting from this situation and to find comfort in one another. So then you see the bullet points and it's like heartbreaking. Um, but again, this is Sesame Street trying to do a good thing where they're like recognizing there's a challenge and they're like, here's how we can talk to kids. I was so scared that Sesame Street was the one who did something wrong in this story and I was like, I don't want to hear it. But listen to this. So let your child know what to expect during everyday activities. Tell her who will take her to school and who will pick her up. Provide your child with a comfort item to keep during the day, such as a paper heart or family photo. Ask your children questions to help her open up. You might notice a negative behavior and say, did something happen today that made you feel sad? More tips. Let your child know that the incarceration is not his fault. Let him know he's not alone. And here are tips for preserving a relationship between an incarcerated parent and child. Phone calls are a great way to keep in touch. Help your child think of things to tell her parent. Give her a picture of the parent to hold during the call. Use pen and paper to write letters. If your child can't yet write, ask her to tell you what to write. She can draw pictures to go with the words. Televisiting can be helpful for some children. Sharing an everyday routine, such as story time, during your televisit is a great way to be together. Like, how fucking sick is that? Again, not Sesame Street, but the fact that we have this society where it's like, these kids, ages three to eight, this is the advice. And it's like, these communities are being destroyed. And Sesame Street recognizes that and is like, we have to do something or these kids are going to be like permanently traumatized from this. Criticize the practice by murdering the plants. Ignoring all the history. Denying them romance. The pinstripe man of morning. Coming for to dance $40 million The kids don't stand a chance 
in Florida, one of the nation's largest school districts has overhauled its discipline policies. The intent is to reduce the number of children going into the juvenile justice system. The state is moving away from so-called zero-tolerance policies, rules that require schools to call police even for minor infractions. Critics call those rules a school-to-prison pipeline, and civil rights and education activists believe the new rules in Broward County can be a model for the nation. NPR's Greg Allen reports from Fort Lauderdale. Under a new program adopted by the Broward County School District, nonviolent misdemeanors, even those that involve alcohol, marijuana, or drug paraphernalia, will now be handled not by police but by the schools. With great pleasure, II-1 has passed unanimously. At a school board meeting today in Fort Lauderdale, a room full of lawyers, judges, police, and educators applauded Chair Lori Rich Levinson's announcement. Zero-tolerance school policies became the norm across the country over the last 20 years, fueled by concerns about gang violence and school shootings. But in Broward County, the nation's seventh-largest school district began looking seriously at changing its policies two years ago. The district superintendent, Robert Runcie, had just taken the job and was troubled. We saw huge differentials and achievement gaps among white, black, and Hispanic students. Black males in particular were probably in some of the worst situations uh, in this district. One of the first things Runcie did was order the district to compile its numbers on suspensions, arrests, and expulsions. And they were startling. In 2010 and 2011, there were more than a thousand school-related arrests, and nearly three-quarters were for nonviolent misdemeanors. Just as troubling is that in Florida and around the country, minorities are disproportionately affected, especially black males. State Judge Elijah Williams says although African-American kids make up just 40% of the school district's population, they account for 71% of the school arrests. We had the highest arrest rate in the state of Florida, which coincidentally, we also had the highest dropout rate. Although the agreement was signed today, the policies were adopted at the beginning of the school year. It's a series of counseling sessions, activities, and interventions called the Promise Program. Officials say they're already seeing a steep drop in school-related arrests. The Promise Program is helping students like 17-year-old Maria Martinez. She's a senior and doesn't want to give details about what got her into trouble. But she says she was very nearly arrested. During my suspension, I went to the Promise Program, um, and it it saved me. It saved, you know, my behind. <laughs> if not, I would have been in bars, or behind bars. Martinez says she's now getting ready to apply to college and hopes to become a nurse or a doctor. Broward County is far from the only school district reevaluating its zero-tolerance disciplinary policies. Officials here credit Clayton County, Georgia, with leading the way. And school districts in Wichita, Kansas, Columbus, Ohio, and Birmingham, Alabama, are just a few of many already following suit. But Marsha Ellison of the local NAACP says this agreement goes further than the other programs. What Broward has done is gone to make sure that the administration is truly back in charge of the school. They have changed their school code of conduct, which was a tool of funneling these kids, and they've changed their matrix. That has not happened across the country. The NAACP is involved in a number of lawsuits challenging school discipline policies across the country. Ellison says this agreement shows a better way to begin dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline.
any given day back in 2010, we put at least 70,000 juveniles in detention centers, which shows you that we are the leading country when it comes to incarcerating our youth, and that has some serious consequences. So these two economists by the name of Ann Iser and Joseph Doyle decided to look into whether or not putting young people in juvenile detention centers actually helps them with their future. And you guys already know the answer to yeah, this. Yeah, I was going to, can I guess? Can I ooh, ooh, yeah. ooh, ooh. Let's put them with a bunch of criminals and see how they turn out. So you guys already know how this is going to you know, turn out. But uh, I think that their study was still really interesting because they looked into uh, Chicago, Illinois, and they noticed that young people will get different punishments for the same crime. So let's say uh, you know, one person is caught for theft. Uh, some judges are more lenient, so they'll give uh, the young person community service or maybe house arrest. But another judge might be more strict, and the young person will get time in a juvenile detention center. So what they did is they compared and contrasted these people for the exact same crime. And here's what they found out. The kids who ended up incarcerated were 13 percentage points less likely to graduate from high school and 22 percent percentage points more likely to end up back in prison as adults than the kids who went to court but were placed under home monitoring instead. So let's understand a couple of things. Uh, number one, we're not talking about murderers and rapists, right? Yeah. I mean, some people are obviously going to go to prison, even no matter how young they are, etc. We're talking about the cases that are in the middle. Yes, where we're talking about nonviolent drug offenses. We're talking about vandalism, theft, burglary, whatever it's stuff like that. It's crazy to send kids to juvenile detention for nonviolent drug offenses or vandalism. You're going to ruin their lives. And, and if you don't care about the kids at all and you're one of those, oh, lock them up, throw away the key, which is, by the way, exactly what Rush Limbaugh used to say about drug addicts before we found out he was a drug addict, right? Mm -hmm. But anyway, let's say you're, even if you're in that category, well, look at the numbers. So many of those kids are going to, so many more of those kids are going to wind up back in prison and cost you a lot of money as a taxpayer, right? Now, does that help? Or they could have gone to school and contribute to the economy and contribute to taxes. So even if you're a person who doesn't give a damn about kids and their future and whatever, and you believe in strict justice, etc., it's going to cost you a lot of money and society a lot yeah, of Yeah, so let me give you an exact number. Six billion dollars a year is what it costs to uh, run our juvenile correction centers. So now that's the overall number for correction centers yes. for juveniles. Now some percentage of that could be obviously deducted if you don't send them to those centers. Instead, you do some of the other forms of punishment, by the way, uh -huh. that are real and significant, right? And plus, you will save when they don't come back to adult prisons, and you'll save the money from that as well. And usually what happens, and it's very similar to what happens in adult prisons, these young people will get sent away to juvenile detention centers, and then they actually learn about real crime. They make friends in those uh, juvenile detention centers, and then they're more likely to come out and, and do some of the violent crime that they might have experienced when they were behind bars. So it's actually uh, counterproductive, and that's why you have a high recidivism rate. I mean, we see that with our adult prisons all the time. It's less about rehabilitating people and more about creating these violent criminals uh, when they come in as nonviolent criminals. Right, you know? and there's two other criminals. aspects. There's two other aspects to this. <clears throat> One is in some of the states where they have private prisons, they think, yeah. Exactly. Win-win. Yeah. More prisoners today, even more prisoners tomorrow, more profits for them, right? You can't privatize a prison. It's insanity. And second of all, this study didn't even take into account a story we did last week where we uh, showed the number of kids who get raped inside 
those uh, detention centers by the guards. Yep. So not only do you have the, the problem of teaching violence, et cetera, from the other juveniles, uh, that are some of the serious criminals that are in there, and then you've got the problem with the guards. Problems, problems, problems all day long. Will my problems work out right or wrong? One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions, so if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind the scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. The phrase school to prison pipeline is a very helpful phrase, but it's really only helpful if you understand the specifics of what it means. Because like I said, otherwise I think it can it becomes just like one more kind of like catchphrase about like struggling, like struggling schools, like, oh, school to prison pipeline, kids end up in prison, whatever. I don't, don't ask me why, but I've heard that they do, you know? Yeah, it's a force of nature. Right. Instead of thinking about it as a, as a civil rights issue and as a policing issue um, and as an education issue, it just kind of becomes like a cultural issue. Um, and as like a matrix of specific policy decisions. Exactly, exactly, that work together to create this... But, 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 you know, once you can kind of divorce the phrase school to prison pipeline from just hearing it as this catchphrase and not knowing what it means, it's actually very, very helpful and very specific. Yeah, it's a combination of policies, of cultural policies and economic policies and um, educational policy and policing practices. And so I got to talk to Prison Culture on Twitter. If you don't follow Prison Culture, go now and follow her. Uh, Run, don't walk. Run, don't walk. She does amazing work. She heads up an organization called Project NIA, which fights youth incarceration. And one of the things she told me was, you know, this, what we see in schools now is part of a much bigger picture, not just about schools, but about harsh policing, about punishing communities of color basically that we've seen since you know the late 70s early 80s like you know if we go back if you read um the new jim crow if you go back and think about this you know the kind of the rhetoric in the reagan era you know against unions against welfare uh you know the drug war rhetoric all of that stuff now because that there is um some awareness uh about like stop and frisk for example i think that what I would like to see is taking some of that energy of awareness about racist policing in the streets and connecting it to the racist policing that happens in schools. Well, so one of the things that's that's really interesting about your piece is talking about um, suspensions and how suspending kids from school is like one of the sort of clearest mechanisms that like creates the school to prison pipeline right for derailing them from being supported in their education and basically redirecting them towards the criminal justice system so you might be thinking you know well kids have always gotten suspended um maybe you know, even i got suspended yeah you do a bad thing you get suspended what's the big deal but the reasons for suspensions have been basically it's all a lot of this comes back to like zero tolerance um policies uh-huh. which are also tied to like columbine and like 
gun scares and school shootings. And also tied to broken windows, broken, policing theory. Exactly, exactly. So on the one hand, you hear that you might hear these stories about, you know, a kid gets expelled for, like, waving a chicken wing like a gun or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> mm, gun, chicken wing. Uh, I feel like that kind of zero-tolerance policy has gotten a little bit of, like, isn't it wild that this chicken wing baby yeah. got sent home or whatever? <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> But I think connecting it to broken windows theory is is, um, also really helpful. Broken windows theory, of course, being like the Giuliani and Bloomberg style of policing or a a theory that informed the the Giuliani and Bloomberg style of policing, you know, get the homeless people off the streets, quality of life policing, you know, don't let kids hang out, uh, don't let, you know, street homeless kids hang out on benches, make everybody keep walking. Get the squeegee guys out of the city. Right, no open containers, all that stuff. In schools, what that means is, you know, basically things that used to just be kid stuff and not like it was ever not a problem for when kids misbehave, but in the past, kids who misbehave would be dealt with within their, within like the education realm, right? So you go to the principal's office or, you know, you would speak with your teacher. Whereas uh, with the presence of police in schools, school safety officers um, who are NYPD, they're part of the NYPD, but they're not technically cops. They're like a different it's a different thing. And there's also some like straight up cops in schools, but there's over 5,000 school safety officers in New York City and there's police presence. Again, that's not just New York City, that's in schools all over the country. But when you have uh, what what another person I talked to in Texas told me is that basically if you have police in schools, they're going to be used, right? They're, yeah. they're not going to not be used. They're there. They have to justify their presence there. Uh, yeah. And, and like it's a complicated thing in terms of like the structural setup, but school safety officers in New York aren't accountable to, you know, to principals, to the educators. So they can kind of act independently. The people I've talked to kind of com- communicate that there's not support in the c- community for, not, and this could vary by school. Certainly there might be schools where the school safety officer's awesome, cares about the kids, knows the kids, knows the principal. Um, but there's not a structural setup to train school safety officers to react the way that a teacher or a principal would in discipline policy. So whereas in the past you had a kid going to the, to the principal's office, if the kid talks back, now you have an NYPD school safety officer there dealing with a kid who talks back. Um, and that's just, and, and when that school safety officer doesn't have training in youth development, doesn't have training in educational psychology, and really importantly, doesn't have training about special needs, about students with disabilities who might have unique um, behavioral needs or emotional needs, then you have the situation where it's what what the NYCLU report called the criminalization of school discipline. Whereas, you know, instead of going to the principal, if you talked back or if you got into a, you know, if you're roughhousing with a friend, then you suddenly have a, somebody who's dressed like a cop who isn't technically an NYPD cop, but is an NYPD officer dealing with you. And that's just a fundamentally different interaction. And it's, uh, not only in terms of like the interpersonal, like I am a kid and this cop is dealing with me, but also in terms of structurally, like that officer is acting as an NYPD school safety officer, not as a principal, not as an agent of the school community. Do uh, school safety officers have the ability to arrest? That is a a, a question I'm, I don't want to get wrong, but there are, the report details arrests in schools, um, and I think I feel safe to say that the answer to that is yes. Okay. Um, it might be 
a little bit more complicated than might that. Might not be just like super black and white. Right. But yeah, so they're the kind of levels of uh, criminalization, um, suspensions being being one of them. And the reason that suspensions are so much worse than, you know, are getting so much worse is because kids get suspended for long periods of time. Sometimes they go to these like alternate sites basically where you like go if you're suspended there's less instruction time there there's sometimes five hours sometimes two hours so you're losing school i mean you're not going to school um that's gonna hurt you for you know if you're uh in seventh grade you're taking all of these tests that are going to be used to determine what high school you get into your great your report card from seventh grade is used to determine what high school you get into so say you get suspended in seventh grade like you're completely fucked for getting into high school uh-huh. um and uh so it's more likely that you will not complete high school and more likely that like you said before that you'll be derailed from an education process into the criminal justice system right so you might not graduate on time especially if you are arrested in new york or like in texas kids get tickets for like disruption of class that's like a, a class c misdemeanor charge and that they have to, like fines they have to go to adult criminal court for oh, wow. like disruption of class wow and they're under 18 so you know you, you have you are literally just shoving kids into the adult criminal justice system uh-huh. uh give you know saddling them with with criminal records or juvenile records you know depending even if it's not always an adult criminal record that mess up college applications mess up if you if you get an adult criminal record it can mess up your family's public housing situation can mess up your family's immigration status job applications job applications yeah and there's so many suspensions there's i don't remember the the number now in new york city but i mean thousands and thousands and thousands of suspensions per year well so should we talk about the disproportionate who's who's affected yeah so half of all the suspensions are given to black students Black student, you may say, well, maybe there's a lot of black students in the New York City public school system. Uh, a third of the population of students is black, and they serve half the suspensions. So very overrepresented among Ex- suspended students. Extremely overrepresented. Black students are far more likely than white students to be suspended, and black students are more likely than white students with disabilities to be suspended. The most suspended group is black students with disabilities proportionally proportionally right black students with disabilities serve 14 percent of the suspensions they're only i think six percent of the population so black students with disabilities are are yeah are proportionally serving just way 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 more suspensions black students um are serving more suspensions than white students or white than than non-disabled white students or white students with disabilities white students with disabilities more likely to be suspended than white students the most suspensions given were in District 7 in New York, which ha- is also the poorest district. Uh, it has 85% of its population is uh, qualifies for free or reduced lunch, low-income population, and 85% of the suspensions were, or 85% of the, no, sorry, that 85% is low-income. That's the district with the most suspensions. And that's in the Bronx. In the Bronx, yeah. Um, another horrifying statistic is that uh, citywide, there, in the 2010-2011 school year, there were almost 193 four-year-olds, little tiny four-year-olds who were suspended. A third of those four-year-olds Tiny little four-year-olds were disabled. Suspended. Not given a timeout. Uh-huh. Suspended. A four-year-old developmentally does not 
I mean, Super Nanny, who I defer to on a lot of disciplinary things, says that, you know, for a four-year-old, a four-year-old needs a four-minute timeout, one minute per uh, year. Longer than that, the kid just doesn't know what's going on. If you give a four-year-old <laughs> an hour timeout, they're, by the time the hour is up, they're like, I have no idea what I'm here for. <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> it's like memento. Yeah, exactly. It's just constantly resetting. Uh, so you suspend a four-year-old. What in God's name do you think that that four-year-old's going to take from that? Yeah. All you're doing is fucking up their ability to be in school. Well, and one of the other parts of of your report, I think was uh, you said was part of the uh, NYCLU report, is that children from communities that are more likely to be stopped and frisked, namely communities of color, especially black and Latino communities, even if they don't go to a neighborhood school, they are more likely to be suspended. Is that is that right? Right. So the NYCLU found that the, the rates of suspension of students by zip code correlated with zip codes of um, where there's high rates of stop and frisk. So specifically what that means is that children who are from neighborhoods that have high rates of stop and frisk are also children with high rates of suspension, if that makes sense. So, Even if they're not going to school in the neighborhood where, like, in their own neighborhood. Right. Like, regardless of where you go to school, if you're from East New York, you are more likely to be suspended. Because, uh, 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 not because, stop, uh, the correlation is not equal causation, right? Uh-huh. But the correlation is, if you are from East New York, there is a correlation. There is high rates of stop and frisk there, and there is a correlation of students from East New York having high rates of suspension. So now, importantly, correlation doesn't equal causation. But what um, Donna Lieberman said, who is the executive director of the ACLU, said, well, you know, we can't infer causation um, from this, but we can infer what we what we do feel comfortable saying is that these policies show an utter disdain for youth of color, basically. Uh-huh. Um, and you know what I said is that what this means is that these are communities whose young residents are policed in their own communities and in their schools, and, or, and often policed under the same, like literally the same um, zero tolerance or broken windows. Like it's the same policing regime inside school and outside school. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the I also talked to somebody from from Legal Aid for an earlier story that I wrote about the school to prison pipeline, and he said, you know, this is this should be seen as an absolute extension of stop and frisk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is this is stop and frisk on children. In schools. Um, Stopandfrisk.edu. Yeah. And remember how we've all been like learning lately how horrifying and unconstitutional and racist and dehumanizing Stop and Frisk is? So it's happening to children. Hey, Jay, this is Luis. Um, I'm a firefighter out here in Texas. And uh, I've, I've called this line before and I left a few messages. But I have an issue that I've been wanting to share. Um, and uh, hopefully if there are other, other first responders who are also listeners and supporters of your show, if, if we can help nip this in the bud, I think it would be great. And one of the issues I'm talking about is sometimes when we walk into uh, homes, and a lot of our calls are in, in, in lower-income areas, there's this need for some of my fellow coworkers, even the, the self, self-described Democrats, to chastise 
to the poor for having a big screen TV, for living in government assistance and their children owning Nikes or, or what have you. And, and I think it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's sad because we, that's neither here nor there on, on, on to what and where people spend their money. And I, it's, it's just, I mean, it was probably a non-issue, probably something that doesn't really matter. But to me, it was just, it's just been, uh, it's just an issue that I think vilifies uh, the poor even more. And, and we're supposed to be there as first responders to support them. Um, you know, if, 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 if that's our attitude, I really think that we should not be in this job. If we are going to um, criticize them for owning uh, material goods, then why are we there providing thousands of dollars worth of emergency care to these people? I mean, we joined uh, this, this civil service jobs to help, uh, whether we're police or firemen or, or teachers, you know, it's not our place to judge what these people have and, and to be there to support them as human beings. And, um, you know, to all firemen, um, police officers and, and teachers who who um, who listen to this show, um, I've started standing up. I've started telling some of my fire, firemen, uh, it's okay, we don't need to talk about that. Or, um, you know what, if you, if you feel that way, you probably should leave this job. Um, and I've taken some flack for it and uh, I couldn't have felt better. To be quite honest, I was always afraid of saying something about this issue. But just recently, I've, I've voiced my opinion a couple of times, you know, um, in a very positive manner, and 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 I've felt nothing but but I've had nothing but positive results in the sense that that, that I feel like I voiced my opinion eloquently, and I um, stood up for what I believe in, and I think that kind of attitude needs to stop because um, I, you know this war on on poor people is. This attitude against against those at the bottom of our social of our society need our support, not our judgment. You know, and and, and, and that's all I have to say. Um, it's probably not a not. It's just a small little thing in my life that 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 I feel um, be addressed. Um, and other firemen, other first responders, other policemen out there. Just remember, guys, we're in this for for everybody. But the people that need us the most are those, and we should stop and nip that attitude in the bud and be there to support our fellow human beings. And that's all I gotta say. Thanks a lot for your show. Keep it up, man. Um, I love it. I keep supporting it. Take care, and have a have a good holiday season. Bye. Hey everybody, Chris the Carpenter here, uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and I think I might be a little late to the party on this one, um, but Jay asked me if I'd uh, call in and, and, and put down my thoughts in terms of uh, basically arguing with conservatives, uh, talking to people with varying uh, political views. And uh, in my mind, there are there are three different versions of a, of a political conversation you can have. Number one is just to throw bumper stickers back and forth at each other. And, and this is valid. I mean, there's nothing wrong with throwing bumper stickers and talking points back and forth to each other. It gets your blood up, and it's, it's you know, it's kind of fun, but it, it ain't going to get you anywhere. The second one is if you actually want to try to convince somebody of your views. And, uh, and then, of course, the third is do you just want to win the argument? And uh, so let's look at two and three. Number two, if you actually want to change someone's mind... First, look, like my mom taught me, the, the best way to lose an argument is to call the other person stupid. So you, you have to use a little tact here. 
And, and then the next step is simplicity. Your argument has to be so simple. I would call it Kansas wisdom, you know, good old boy wisdom. Your argument has to be so simple that there's no weaseling out of it. There's no spinning out of it. Case in point, the from my many years of, of working at job sites as a trim carpenter, as a cabinet guy, there's always the Rush Limbaugh guy with the stereo turned up all the way. And with a guy like that, the best you can do is plant a seed. Example. Hey, Tom, um, listen to Rush, you know, Rush Limbaugh there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh. Hey, Tom, when have you, um, have you decided to take personal responsibility for your life and get rich? Um, when, when do you think you're going to start being, you know, living responsibly and, and working hard um, so you can get rich? Well, well I work hard now. No you, no, you don't. You're, you're not rich, dude. Look. And, you know, it's, yeah, you're kind of shoving it in his face, but th that's planting a seed, and that's probably the best you're going to do. Or, um, oh, you know, so-and-so is sick. Oh, Jesus. I hope they die quick. I'm invested in their health care, you know. And just like, wait a second, I never thought about the fact that people are making money off my grandmother dying with Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know. So simplicity, 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 and you can't be a dick about it. And then finally, uh, my personal advice, how to win every conversation you're ever in, ever. It's very simple. Act like a moron and ask questions. Just keep asking questions. And this is based on the theory that nobody knows anything about anything, including myself. And basically, when someone starts spouting off, you know, oh, Obamacare. Oh, yeah, what, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you hate about Obamacare? I, I, I don't know. I just don't like it. Well, what, but yeah, what, what specifically? Do you think, are you going to save money? Or have you done the exchange or anything? You know, I, I haven't. But I was just wondering if you, you know, what, are you going to lose a lot of money? No, but, but. You know, or damn Obama raising my taxes. Oh yeah, how much do you take? What, what do you mean? Well, you, you just tell me the black guy got into office and came and took all your money via taxes. You, you never stopped to check how much he took? What, so how much higher are your taxes now? You know, simple stuff like that. N nobody you're ever gonna argue with can answer these questions. And so there's my advice. Arguing with conservatives, it takes an incredible amount of tact if you want to try to change their mind, and you're probably not going to. If you just want to win the argument, just act like you don't know a thing and keep asking questions until they look like a dumbass. <laughs> That's generally been my technique with most of the good old boys on job sites. Jay, thank you for all that you do. Much love, brother. And, um, and to everyone else, Godspeed. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Uh, so j just yesterday, I, I was sort of contemplating the delicate interplay between legislation and culture, because, you know, it was Sunday afternoon, and I don't watch football, so that's what I was doing instead. And... I, I, basically, I want to ask you guys a question. I want, I want you guys to think about uh, examples of this. I'm going to give you one example. I want to see you know how many more we can come up with, and and maybe we'll continue this conversation uh, going forward. But I, I came across this this line of thinking uh, as it relates to population mitigation, uh, you know, all around the world. And so there are these nonprofit organizations, you know, working on the ground all around the world, trying to you know help populations of, of developing countries uh, or even developed countries sort of mitigate 
their population growth so that they you know don't outstrip their resources so that you know, to empower women to uh, you know mitigate climate change effects and so on and so on like we're not trying to euthanize a bunch of people <laughs> we're just trying to give you know trying to empower people to make decisions on their own about how you know family planning that's the whole idea in my opinion if the organizations are doing it right that's more or less how they're doing it. But you have to keep in mind that culture plays a huge role in any sort of policies like that. And so you, there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all policy where you can go around the world saying, well, in America, we really enjoy condoms, and so we think you should use these too. They you know, reduce the spread of uh, STDs, and they prevent unwanted pregnancies. You should totally get on board with condoms because a lot of people have cultural beliefs that simply conflict with that. They're just not going to be, uh, you know, hip to your jive if, if that's what you're pushing. And so if these organizations are doing their jobs correctly, they have to get in on the ground in, you know, all these locations all around the world and understand the local culture bef and, and so that they can tailor their message to fit the existing culture. You can't impose culture on people. It just doesn't, I mean, you can try, but it just doesn't work. You know, that's, that's what colonialism is all about and uh, things don't go well. So that's one example of the interplay between legislation or, or policies and culture and how they interact with each other. And another example I thought of and, and you know, put some thought behind was how sort of minimum wage, service worker jobs, and the culture of tipping. So it, it's pretty easy to compare minimum wage in America versus minimum wage in uh, you know Europe or Australia, someplace like that, and see this huge disparity. And how you know, you can recognize a lot of inherent problems with it. And you could say that our service workers are not getting paid nearly what they should. And the excuse you will get is that well, service workers live on tips, and that's the you know, that's the system that we have in place. If they, you know, if we didn't have a system of tipping, well, then it would make sense to pay them more. But since they get tips the way they do, it doesn't make sense. So that's the argument made. And so, you know, what I want you to sort of think about, and I might expand on uh, in, in the next episode, is how does the culture of tipping complicate the idea of trying to change the, the minimum wage for service workers you know, in a way that you wouldn't have that problem in a place like Europe or Australia where, where tipping is not nearly uh, as expected as it is here. And, you know, and so, so those are a couple of examples, and I would love to hear more. If you can think of any other examples where, you know, culture plays a huge role in what policies make sense, uh, my, my sense is that maybe all <laughs> policies are influenced by culture. Yeah, I, I, uh, uh, definite argument could be made for, you know, gun control policies and how, you know, some countries can have stricter gun controls than others because of uh, the cultural interplay there. Anyways, if you have thoughts on that, uh, please send them in. The number again, 202-999-3991. I thought it was, it's just, it was a really interesting line of thought for me to follow yesterday. Uh, and I'll share more of, of what I sort of thought about, um, I bet you guys have some thoughts on it, on it too. And 
examples that wouldn't have crossed my mind. Uh, so that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained